This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. I want to remind you to visit sciencemodelingtalks.com, where you can access a lot of extra content and learn more about us and the American Modeling Teachers Association, the professional organization that we promote. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Anita Shukart, an assistant professor of biology education research in the Department of Biology Teaching and Learning at the University of Minnesota. Anita has received a PhD from Columbia University in genetics and development and from the University of Pittsburgh in learning sciences and policy. After receiving training in modeling instruction in physics at ASU, Anita and her colleagues at Shadyside Academy developed modeling instruction for high school biology. Modeling instruction principles continue to inform Dr. Shukart's work and teaching at the university level. She has published articles on the effect of mathematical modeling curriculum on students' problem-solving and conceptual understanding in statistics and genetics. Her research interests include developing and understanding students' sense-making in biology and mathematics. Her research interests include developing and understanding student sense-making in biology and mathematics and creating and assessing model-based interventions that promote sense-making. Here's my interview with Dr. Shukart. Hi, Anita. Hi, Mark. How's it going? Pretty good. Thank you for inviting me to your program. Oh, it's great. I'm glad you're here. I, uh, I'm i wondering, what's the, in Minnesota, what's the weather like? Um, there's no snow on the grass. That's a plus. And <laughs> it's a little windy today, though. <laughs> okay. So yeah. You said something in our conversations, in our, in our communications, about being excited that it's almost kayaking season. Yes, I like to go kayaking on the, on the lakes. Yeah. And... So, um, you know, I'm, I, I look forward to the weather getting warm enough for me to be able to do that. I live right by several different lakes, and so I can go kayaking whenever I want on the weekends or during the week. That's awesome. That, that's neat to have handy. <laughs> Let's see. You're at Minnesota University, correct? University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, and tell our listeners uh, exactly what your role is there. I am an uh, assistant professor in biology education research. And so you teach what kind of classes? So I teach biology, um, introductory biology for majors. Um, and I advise graduate students in doing biology education research. And I know that you've been heavily influenced by modeling instruction methodologies through in the past, and and you've been involved with the development. Am I correct? You've been involved in the development of some of the modeling instruction curriculum for biology. Yes, that's that's right. The first iteration of the biology um, modeling instruction curriculum came out of Shadyside Academy, and so. Um, Myself and my colleague, Bill Deal, um, worked on that during the summer and then implemented it and refined it. And then we ran workshops on it. And then 
when Kathy Malone moved to Ohio State University, she got a grant to do revisions on it formally. And I was a consultant on that grant and participated in the revisions of that curriculum. What years were these? When did you start? So 2005, summer of 2005 was when I took my first modeling instruction in physics. Um, then in the 2005, 2006, I taught modeling instruction in physics. And the summer of 2006, uh, we started working on the biology modeling instruction curriculum. Um, and we did that because our students were doing modeling instruction in physics, the modeling instruction in chemistry, and we didn't feel right that they didn't have a modeling instruction in biology to follow that. Gotcha. And so we started teaching that in the academic year 2008, approximately. Okay. So was, uh, and that was at Shadyside Academy, am That's I right? That's right. Yeah, it's a small independent school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Now, this the curriculum that you helped develop for that yes. has been disseminated through the workshops with AMTA. Yes. Is that, is, am I right there? Yeah, so we've run some workshops, yeah. So the modeling in the biology classroom has kind of grown since you guys started that, right? Yeah, it's been really nice to see it grow. So there have been people in some of my first workshops of modeling instruction in biology um, who became modeling instruction a leader, workshop leaders themselves. And they they then disseminate that more and... Um, you know, it's been really nice to see that progression and that development. Tell me about now, I guess 2005 was when you took your first workshop with modeling? Yes, I believe so. <laughs> yes. Okay. And was that your first introduction to it? That's how you got introduced? That was how I got introduced to it. And it was physics. Um, and it was preparing to teach physics to freshmen. And I had not taken physics since I was a long time ago in undergraduate in college. <laughs> and I, I, I did physics algorithmically. I did, I solved physics problems, you know, as if they were algorithms. Okay, show me the formula and I'll apply it. Uh -huh. And the modeling instruction in physics workshop was the first time where I understood physics conceptually. Ah. And, I was so impressed with the curriculum, with the teaching method. And I was like, well, we can do this in biology. We have models in biology and we can totally do this. That's interesting. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a teacher. So this, me doing this podcast has always been really fun <laughs> to discover things, you know, but how, how did you talk to me a little bit about how you see the models in, in biology for those who are listening, you know, but most of the modelers I've encountered are physics or chemistry. Yeah. And I've not talked with a lot of biology modelers, but so talk to us a little bit about that. So um, there's several different models in biology and it depends on the way that you like to think of them. So, um, one of the big ones is evolution. Hmm. Um, you, you really cannot have biology without having a model of evolution and how that works. And then applying that to all different kinds of contexts. 
Um, and then another one would be, you could either call it information flow or inheritance, but how are traits passed down from one organism to the next organism? Um, and that could be sexually or asexually. You have energy flow. Energy flow is a really big one, just like it is in physics and chemistry. The idea that um, for us, we focus a little bit more on how energy flows through an ecosystem. Um, and that also also comes with matter transformations. Um, trying to think what our other, there are others that we have that I'm, that I'm blanking on right now, but those are three of the biggest ones. Now, I know that from reading about you a bit that you apply a mathematical approach in your modeling yes. curriculum. Yes. Talk to us about how how you came to that and how you employ it. Okay. So um, in the physics and chemistry modeling curriculum, the mathematics is there. It's explicit. It's in it's implicit, but it's also implicitly part of the curriculum. It's an integral part of the curriculum. Much of biology is taught without reference to the mathematics, but it's such a strong representation. If you can model something, your ideas mathematically, you have to distill the concepts down to their essence because you have to decide what is going to be included in your mathematical model. And you can't include everything. You have to include the key features. And so having students mathematically model means that they have to discuss among themselves. And by mathematically model, I mean construct a mathematical representation of their ideas about whatever phenomenon they're studying based on data, based on their observations of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And um, they have to discuss among themselves, oh, which are the features I need to pay attention to? Which are the ones that are important? How are they going to be incorporated? How does that, um, how are they related? Are, are they added or are they subtracted or, you know, um, and what does that mean? And the reason that I, incorporated that is because when we first did the first pass at the biology um, modeling curriculum, the mathematics was a little weak. We didn't have time to develop all the representations equally, and the mathematics was a little weak. We definitely had it in inheritance um, because you need that to be able to predict outcomes. And um, the students were still having a hard time with it, even though we have them based on data. And so when I did my doctoral research in learning sciences, the group I went with was working with mathematics and biology. And I, and we, um, and so that was my focus. And I said, well, you know, and they wanted to use this specific approach. And I said, well, I know that doesn't work. It doesn't work with my high school students. So let's try something different. And my advisor would, gave me the freedom to try something new. And so we um, did an equation, uh, got students to develop an equation which related um, egg and sperm joining and the probability of an outcome. Um, and it doesn't use, for the biologists out there, the Punnett square, which is the traditional representation. And so... And I can speak a little more. Can I just say one more thing? Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry, this, I could go on forever about this. So, um, But 
One of the really neat things that you see, I'll give an example. One of the reasons why I think it's so powerful. So um, we have students who are modeling um, the population growth equation and they're doing a basic one with bacteria and just you know, describing how they grow. Like, how does that, how do you get more and more bacteria using a mathematical equation? And in um, biology, when a bacteria splits in two, that's called dividing. However, that dividing is contradictory to the multiplying that is occurring with the population. And so we've got recordings of students saying, well, that's dividing, but that's it's not dividing in the equation, it's multiplying. Wait, what do we mean? And, and they discuss both what dividing means conceptually in the biology and then what they have to do in the equation, how they represent that and how that actually is represented as an exponent, which is multiple multiplications. Um, and hearing them kind of tease apart those concepts is, is why I do mathematical modeling in biology. Wow. That's that's pretty fascinating. So you also use, I know, um, you, you look at the effect of mathematical modeling curriculum on how students problem solve and how they develop their conceptual understandings of statistics and genetics. Yes. Talk to me about that. Okay. So... Let's split that up just a little. So for the genetics, um, we, so this was when I, for my dissertation work largely, but not fully. I've added on to it since then. But for my dissertation work, what we looked at was, um, we had developed high school curriculum for high school students to be able to, um, represent egg and sperm joining in a single gene cross and then modify that equation to apply to crosses where there were multiple genes, matings where there, where there were more than one gene. And then we used a multiple choice test to assess students' understanding of biology concepts and also students' ability to solve problems that involved more than one gene or to apply the principles that learned to, um, to a slightly different application of the problem. So instead of predicting offspring outcome, predicting outcomes of um, gametes or sperm uh, and eggs. And um, we compared the results for students who had experienced the model-based curriculum and students who had not. Hmm. And students who experienced the model-based curriculum not only did better on the more complex problems in the mathematically and solving them for the probability, but they also did better on, showed better understanding of their biology concepts. Mm. And I think that has to do with what I talked about before, was they have to discuss these ideas in order to mathematically model them. Mm -hmm. um, so they did better than students who hadn't experienced the curriculum. And when we look at students who have experienced a model-based curriculum, and we've done this at both the high school and the college level, Students who experience the model-based curriculum use more approaches to trying to solve genetics problems. They use both biology-based approaches and mathematical approaches. And um, as part of my dissertation research, I showed that they switched approaches to either when they got stuck 
to check their answer as they were proceeding through the problem and then to check their answer when they got to the end of the problem. Um, and so that's probably what accounts for them being more successful at it. Mm. The, um, for the college level, we've um, also done implementing an inheritance um, and we've extended that slightly to talk about gene regulation. So we have students mathematically model whether different activators or repressors and the um, different proteins that are involved in transcribing a gene to make a protein, um, whether they're bound to the promoter. And then they, they mathematically model that, and then they can make predictions about whether or not a gene will be turned on or turned off. And it is very reminiscent of like, it's almost like a computer instruction because it's very like multiplying. Yes, it's on. No, it's off. And you multiply them all together to get it. Um, so it helps to form the connection in their heads that, oh, mathematics forms the basis of computer programs that simulate what's going to happen and make predictions. Um, and then the statistics. So people not just students, but people in general struggle with statistics. So the research shows it doesn't matter whether you're an undergraduate student or graduate student, medical professional, um, a principal investigator, that people use statistics incorrectly. They talk about statistics incorrectly. And we hypothesize that part of the reason for that is they don't connect statistics to... Um, this idea of biological variation. So statistics is really important in biology because everything varies. Nothing's the same. It's not like in physics where it's like, okay, your variation is very small. In, in biology, individual organisms vary for lots of different reasons. And you have the only way to take that into account is by doing statistical tests. Um, and so we developed a curriculum to have students actually um, mathematically model that variation, they came up with a formula which it, um, expressed how far their data points were on average from the mean. And that's related to standard deviation, which is in most statistical formulas. And then they saw how that related to the t-test and how that related to sample size. And when we developed this curriculum, we trained TAs to implement it and um, we compared students who had the curriculum with students who had not, and students who had the curriculum did much better on an assessment mm. that measured their understanding of statistics. And not only did they do much better right after the curriculum, but that persisted into the next semester. Um, so that was rewarding in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... There's a buzzword that I've heard, and I don't know if it's a buzzword or just a, it's a real focus for a lot of people in the modeling community right now where they're investigating computational modeling yeah. and employing that in the, in the classroom. What's your understanding of that, and are you using that at all in your classrooms? So the closest we get is with the um, – Mathematical modeling and gene regulation. So we, um, because students are 
they once they're done constructing the mathematical formula, they enter it into an Excel document, which is basically programming the Excel to do to mm-hmm. multiply the cells that they should multiply and come out with an output. And I when see. they do that, they they get an output. And so it's baby steps, it's small and it's very focused. Um, and the reasons for that, it's uh that's where I kind of want to go next. It's like, okay, let's explore. They're doing this small step. Where do we take it next? And how do we connect it up to this more, this idea of actually incorporating in a computer program and doing that? Um, I think that one of the things that I need to be aware of as an instructor is that I need to figure out where I'm focusing my students' attention. Um, and so while it's very important that they learn to code, they do do that a lot in their lab courses and it's very structured coding, but they do do that. Uh, and if they're trying to learn to do the mathematical modeling, pay attention to the biology concepts and figure out how, what code to put in, I may be asking them to do too much. So I need to figure out Mm. how to break it down so that they focus on one piece at a time. Um, and I think that that type of modeling, and I have a colleague who in the college space works on this much more than I do. And one of the powerful aspects of that kind of computational modeling is that it is super powerful for getting students to pay attention to the hidden pieces, the things Mm -hmm. they cannot see, because you can model those on a computer. You can have students... um, figure out how to represent that in code, see whether that's going to have the effect that they predict it will have and, and those kinds of things. Um, and it's just figuring out where's the best place to use it. Yeah. You teach in the university setting. Yes. In some very large classrooms. Yeah. 150 students plus. It's kind of hard to employ all the the uh, methodologies of modeling that a lot, most of our high school teachers use in that kind of setting. You like, for example, you you know, to do a whiteboard session would be ridiculous. I think with 150 people, <laughs> we do a modification of it. Yeah. Oh, you do. Yeah. That see, that's my question: is how how uh, <laughs> does mo- the concepts of modeling instruction influence your teaching in the classroom at that at your university level yeah so um we do modify the whiteboard sessions i have between 150 to 180 students um students are in groups of nine um which is not ideal but i sometimes subdivide them into groups of three within those groups of nine Uh, they have whiteboards that are available to them around the room Wow. Um, but it's very difficult to share those whiteboards. And I was using a kind of, it was an, uh, it was a video capture, like, so I could have a student huh. capture it and then I could project what that student was saying about their whiteboard around this screen. Okay. But we've discovered a new method thanks to COVID. So Google Slides are great whiteboards. Ah. And so we have students put their representations and on, uh, on Google Slides, each one slide for each team. That way, when we come back together as a group, whichever group is showing is speaking, I can show their Google slide. 
And then they, we can project that up on the projectors in the classroom and they can talk about that. Everybody can see it or they can look at it on their computers and then we can have a discussion about that. We don't necessarily always get to every group. Um, and so I have some ways to address that. So, um, one of the things that we do, and I think this is an advantage because they're college students, but might work with upper level high school students too, is that I have them provide feedback on each other's um, presentations or mm. ask questions. And so mm. um, that's one way. And so I'll do it in different ways. Sometimes if it's a picture that they've drawn on the whiteboard, I'll have each group move around one and put um, post-it notes and things like that onto the whiteboard so that, and then have a discussion. Um, and we also, I also structure Google Docs where they can provide feedback on the Google Docs and then we can look through them and discuss interesting ones. Hey, everybody. We'll get back to our interview in just a moment. But the AMTA wants you to know that summer virtual courses are filling up fast. Make sure to reserve your seat today. To see a full list of the virtual courses and workshops, visit modelinginstruction.org. Modelinginstruction.org. You can also watch the latest Meet a Modeler video by following AMTA on Facebook, Twitter, or by subscribing to their YouTube channel. Now, back to our show. I want to ask you about this other... Uh, part of the modeling approach is, you know, Socratic dialogue mm-hmm. and and drawing the students' knowledge out from them rather than feeding it to them. Do, do you employ that kind of thing in your classroom oh, yeah. as well? Okay. <laughs> A lot. So, so, so share how that works in the in the large classroom like that. <laughs> so when they're working in their groups, I get around to as many as I can. And, you know, I ask them questions like, tell me what you're thinking. Um, you know, why did you decide to do that? And how are you going to, you know, what have you thought about this? And I really try and get them to refine their knowledge in that space. Uh, it's another power of Google Slides because I, the, I can go and see in the slides where each group is at before I go around to the group. And then I can get to them and I can target my questioning for where they're at to help move them forward. Um, and then when they present their work, um, I ask some questions. I ask them, you know, how do you know that? That's one of my favorites, right? How do you yeah. know? Um, can you provide the evidence? I encourage the students, the other students. I ask them, do you have any questions, comments, or thoughts about what your peer has said? Um, and it takes a little while in the classroom. It's very different than a normal college classroom, right? (laughs) To get students to do this. And it takes a while, but by about mid-semester, they're very comfortable speaking up. And I think partly because I ask for comments as well and reflections and questions. So they don't necessarily have to put their, uh, the other team on the spot. Um, And then the other approach that I use, which is not, is kind of modeling instruction, but kind of not is based is that, I'll often have every group say one thing about something. 
Uh, there's something they've learned, right? And then I'll ask them, oh, what's your evidence for that? Or why do you think that? And so as we go around, we build up all our evidence for it. But if they get stuck anywhere, they can do uh, what I say, you can call a friend, which means call on another team, <laughs> or you can, we have one designated speaker that rotates every week in the teams. And so that person speaks. And if that person gets stuck, they're allowed to call on any of their teammates to speak up and help them. But, sure. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Are there other ways that your, your teaching has been influenced by modeling? instruction. I'm just curious about you personally. Uh, yeah. The use of multiple representations. So I focus mm. on the mathematical representations as a way to get students to build their ideas, but, um, and to represent their ideas. But I also, um, make heavy use of pictorial representations. And when, um, students are, are developing their mathematical representations, I ask them to draw out what they're, what they're doing. Um, to represent that. Um, and we work a lot with doing different types of representations, talking about why they're important, how it helps them. And um, I get a lot of students saying, wow, I realize that, you know, if I get stuck somewhere, I can draw a picture of it and that helps me. And, mm -hmm. you know, or, oh, you know, I could actually use mathematics in my other classes because that, that helps me. And I get, I try to give them lots of different tools and lots of different representations and lots of different ways to access the material. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other way is, and we can't do the same kind of paradigm labs that you can do in in high school classrooms, because right. the way the college, at least our college of biology is set up, the labs are run very separately from the high, from the um, lecture. So instead of doing that, what we do is I provide them with data. So it's like, and give them a rundown of the experiment and provide them with the data and ask them to, um, for the population growth, for example, represent this pictorially and then do your mathematical expression that represents the ideas that you represented in the picture um, and then present out their work. And that, that works pretty well, actually. I, one of the questions I had was, and you just touched on it was in with a class that large, how do you handle the labs and the coordination between your instruction time and the connection with your students and their lab work? We don't get a lot of a chance, unfortunately, to do that. That's run very independently. Um, mm. And that's that's common on a lot of college campuses, not all of them. I have some ideas of some of the things that are going on because I actually work. As I said, we implemented a curriculum on one of the lab courses. I I kind of keep my hand in both places, so to speak, uh, but I don't do curriculum development like the lab curriculum development. Um, and so, but I also, my graduate students TA in the lab courses. So I also get to talk to them and I find out what's being taught when. So when we're talking about PCR, I'm at least able to reference it to say, oh, like you saw, but we cannot do the same kind of coordination that you can do at the high school level where often, you know, the labs and the classroom can be tightly intertwined. Right. It's just not. Um, I do know in other, in other settings in college, it is possible to do that where, it, the, you know, uh, that happens. We're a large institution mm -hmm. and that would be very difficult to manage. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So earlier in our conversation, you referenced several statistics from that have come out of research and, you know, into your area of expertise. Now, I know that you have a thing called the Shoe Cart Research Group. Yes. I was looking you up and I found this website. <laughs> so is that the source of some of your uh, discoveries in research or talk to, I, I guess, basically my question is, what is the Shoe Cart Research Group? <laughs> <laughs> what is it and what do we do, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> And how does it research- how does it connect to your university position? Exactly. So the so like many sciences, right, have um, what they call a lab. So if you're in biology, you have a biology lab. If you're a professor, and you have graduate students and postdocs and undergraduate students who work with you, and they do research under your guidance. And so you know it's kind of weird to call an educational research. Um, setting a lab. So instead, we call it a research group. And so my shoe cart research group is composed of the members, well, and now past members who, um, who have worked at some point with me on doing educational research. And they are the ones, if they're graduate students and postdocs, they are spearheading a lot of this research, I might come up with some ideas and I guide them and stuff. Um, and I'll give you a few examples of some of their work and some of the undergrads work too, because yeah. they've done some pretty amazing stuff as well. Cool. So, um, and that's related mostly to the mathematics stuff. So, um, one of my former, um, graduate students, she's now an assistant professor, um, in China. She, um, she, did a, she reviewed all the literature that was talking about mathematics and science in physics, chemistry, biology, in high school, college, wherever it was. And she came up with this framework of mathematics and science sense-making when in mathematics and science. And so what types of sense-making are going on, which is basically are students making, or people, making connections between the math and the science and also are they what types of connections what are they connecting are they talking about math procedure are they talking about mathematics concepts are they talking about the scientific mechanism or are they talking about the scientific labels of the variables um and that framework has been very productive for our research group so Mm. we looked at what biology instructors were doing and we found that it's they provide their students with access to lots of different um, what we call sense-making opportunities in, of mathematics and science. And Sense-making? Sense-making. So that mm-hmm. means that they're getting the opportunity to make sense of mm-hmm. that mathematics equation in that mm-hmm. science context. Right. Um, and the one thing, though, is that very few instructors provide students with the opportunity to connect the mathematics sense-making of that equation with the science sense-making of that equation, what Mm. we call blended sense-making. Instead, what you see most often is, okay, here's the science ideas, here's the mathematics ideas, and repeat. And so the reason that's so important is because it's been shown that when students do connect science ideas with mathematics ideas, 
that's when they're better able to solve problems. That's mm. when they're better able to like apply their mathematics knowledge, not just to what they were taught in the classroom, but to problems that are a little bit more complex or to transfer to a slightly different context. Um, mm. So that's fun. And then um, I have a graduate student right now who is looking at students' discussions as they are mathematically modeling, as they are constructing their mathematical models. And she found that there is a lot of sense-making of the science, of trying to make sense of the science concepts when they are constructing these mathematical equations, even mm. though it's a mathematical task. Um, and she's found that they're talking about the mechanism of science, how what the processes are that allow for this phenomenon to occur. Um, and she's going to be presenting at that at the conference next week. So I'm very oh. proud of her. She's done a lot of work on that. So, yeah, and then I have undergraduates who are also um, doing work. Um, one of them is looking, I think I referenced before about how students are solving problems after model-based instruction and before. And mm -hmm. he was, he's the one who found out that they're doing lots of different strategies after instruction, more strategies mm. after instruction. And wow. that's associated with success. So, yeah. Well, we will put the link for your website, uh, the, the uh, Shukart Research Group website on our, our webpage. <laughs> so Great. when people, That'll you know, we'll work on updating it. It's a, it's a little out of date, but we're working on it. <laughs> well, it's I imagine it's hard to keep it up to date with what we've been dealing with, with the pandemic yes. and all that kind of stuff, you know. So yeah. That's cool. I was just talking to a group of undergraduate students today, um, and they had met with me as part of our, we do a orientation kind of program for our first year students. And they had met with me to talk about what I do. And so many of them said, I didn't know that there was anything I could do with biology besides medicine and research. Huh. And I didn't find out about biology education research until, you know, I got a PhD in another topic, taught in the high school. And then I found out that there was this thing called biology education research. So I encourage like high school teachers. I wish I knew more about this stuff when I was a high school teacher too, like the, the biology education research. So I encourage, you know, to tell students that there's so many more things they can do, open up the world. And I know it's really tough because, you know, as a high school teacher, I struggled with that as well. But there's a lot out there. We'll talk about that. Talk a little bit about what kinds of other options there are. Yeah. So, um, so the other options are like, like I said, you can do... You can teach, obviously, but you can also do education research in biology. And that's, I do a certain type of research, but I have colleagues who are researching into culture, into diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and social justice issues in biology, mm -hmm. uh, both in the biology discipline itself and in biology teaching. Um, and there is so many different avenues. I have a a student who is a former undergraduate who is looking to do biology, archaeology uh, slash anthropology. Yeah. Um, 
we need, there's a desperate need for um, journalists who understand biology, who go do biology and do that. Um, biology illustrators and people who can illustrate and provide those illustrations and, and a creative um, and, but know some biology. And there is another huge need that is for, um, this is going to say lawyers who know biology. We oh are. Yeah. <laughs> because there are so many, uh, you wouldn't think that, right? So it's oh. like, there are so many different things you can do with a biology degree that, um, it's a lot more than we think, I think, when we go into it. And yeah. 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 Wow. I had several of those things you just mentioned. I had never thought of as, you know, a, a career path or, a, you know, something to invest your time in around biology or a, having a degree. That's really very cool. Um, you know, uh, it's been really fun talking with you, uh, and you have shared a lot of interesting information that I wasn't w aware of, and I know that uh, our listeners are going to really get a lot out of this conversation, so thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us. And thank you, Mark, for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you and getting a chance to express some of these ideas. Yeah, it's really great, Anita. Best of luck to you as you continue at the university. And uh, we'll probably cross paths at some time in the future. I am sure we will. I'm hoping to eventually get back to an AMTA conference. So Awesome. But good when I can do that. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes, which include guest bios, show highlights, and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview. While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom. Mm -hmm.